This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Jason Burns and Access Church in Lakeland, Florida. For more information, visit access.tv. Today, I'm really excited you're here. We are in part three of a series that I've loved. The series is called Heart and Soul. Week one, if you missed it, let me catch you up. We said our relationships are one of the greatest indicators of the success of our lives. Like we were created not to do life alone, but to be in God-honoring, profound, deep kinds of relationships. Week one, we said you need some friends who have your back, who love you heart and soul. And I just wonder as an adult, do you have that? Like when you get to be an adult, it's so interesting how our relationships change and you need that from people. But I said that week, you also need to be that for people. Last week was Valentine's weekend and my wife and I preached a message that was kind of like a drive-by on all kinds of stuff related to our romantic relationships. We called it love, marriage, and baby carriage. We, we started by talking about the love season of life, the dating season. And then we talked about the marriage season, and we ended by talking about our season of being parents. And if you missed last week, it's a super practical, helpful message for you. Today, I've got a message on what it means to live in a God-honoring kind of marriage. Let me say this up front to those of you who are like, well, I'm not married yet, or I was married and didn't quite work out. The principles from this apply to every season of your life. But here's what I also want you to know. Marriage was always God's plan A. And if it's messed up for you, or if you've been hurt or abused or abandoned, listen, I understand. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Ask God to be the redeemer and the restorer of your soul. And let's see what God does as we entrust our hearts to him. All right, let's pray and let's get to work today. So God, in this place, we just invite you to do that thing that only you can do which is you can speak and you can change us. God, no great orator, no great speaker could ever speak words that can change us, but one word from heaven can forever alter the destiny of our lives. So that's our prayer, God. Speak to us, change us. May we leave having encountered you. We thank you for it, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Many years ago, before Access even started, I was working a job at another place and I got a call from one of my best friends. And he said, bro, is there any chance I could come see you right now? It's an emergency. I said, sure, what's up? And literally two seconds later, he came busting through the door at my office. I was like, oh, you meant like right now, right now. And this was like this big, brash, kind of Northeastern kind of a guy. He was not one to show his emotions and he walked into my office. He closed the door behind him. And the moment the door latch made the sound of the closing door, this man dissolved into tears, fell to his knees and he was ugly crying. Come on, anybody know what an ugly cry is? Like there's some cries that feel cathartic, but then there's an ugly cry. That's where you got bubbles coming up out of places in your nose, right? It's just ugly. And you're doing that thing where you're like, like you can't catch your breath because you're doing that when you're crying. You know what I'm talking about? I got this grown man in my office and he's ugly crying and I have no idea what this is about. And I was like, bro, like what are we doing here? What's going on? Talk to me. And in between his sniffles and his crying, he goes, my dad my dad. And I said, he goes, my dad just sat me down. And he said, son, I don't know how to tell you this, but I just confessed to your mom that I've been having a long-term affair. This guy was a pastor. This guy loved God. This guy had a long marriage that was the kind of marriage that many of us would look at and say, that's the kind of marriage that I want. And he confessed to his son and his wife and his whole family and then ultimately lost his church over this whole thing. But he confessed that he had been unfaithful in the marriage. And I remember thinking if it can happen to them, it could happen to me or it could happen to any one of us. Can I I be real for just a moment with you? 
Over the last year or so, there has been a tidal wave of mistakes, affairs, abuse, divorce, separation, both in our church and in my own personal life, in relationships that I have outside of the church. And I just wanna say this to you when it comes to marriage. I think that marriage is one of the great testimonies that the church should have to the world around us. It's one of the great stories that we should tell. It should be a beacon of light to an increasingly dark world. But let me explain it to you like this. Imagine if I told you today that if you were to leave church and you were to drive home the way that you always drive home when you come to church. You took the same path, you took the same streets, you knew exactly where to turn. You had done it so many times that you don't need a GPS to get you home. But I told you that on your way home today, there is a 50% chance that you will be in a catastrophic car accident on your way home. But there's another path you can take. It's a little out of the way. You gotta go a few extra steps. It might take you a few extra minutes to get home, but there is a 100% chance that you would get home safely. Who would be dumb enough to take the path where there's a 50% chance that it ends in catastrophe? This is the way of the world when it comes to marriage. Like if you follow the ways of the world, statistically 50% or more of marriages in our country end in flames. They end in catastrophic failure and divorce. Who would sign up for that? Who would sign up to go the way of this world? But can I give you another thought to consider? If you go the way of God, if you make this decision that you and your spouse commit that for the rest of your life, you are going to live your life honoring God, honoring each other, and honoring the laws of God for marriage. Can I give you some good news? You have a 100% chance of success. In fact, I can understand why people don't wanna get married. I can understand why in our generation, there's the lowest percentage ever of people older than the age of 18 who are unmarried in America right now. I understand why that happens because marriage feels like a risk. It feels like a risk with not a ton of reward on the other side of it. But here's what I want you to understand. In God's economy, it works different. In fact, I'll say it like this. Marriage is the safest relationship on the earth when God's laws for love are honored. Marriage is, and let me say it to you like this, marriage should be the safest relationship you ever experience in this world. It is and should be the safest, but it's only the safest when God's laws are observed. So funny, if you point out every single divorce, you could probably trace the roots of the divorce back to someone breaking one of these laws. So here's what I'm gonna do in these next few minutes. I wanna look at God's laws for love and God's laws for marriage. And if you're single, I want you to write these notes down and I want you to tuck this away for someday when you find yourself pursuing marriage. If you are married, I want you to do the hard work of looking in the mirror at your own soul. Listen to me, don't be that person who like elbows your wife and you're like, mm-hmm, that's for you. Don't be that person. I'm gonna step all upon your toes in a minute. And here's my prayer. My prayer is that God will use this to set our marriages up to be a beacon of hope and a beacon of light to our increasingly dark world. Here is the four laws of marriage. Genesis chapter two says this, God creates the world and he places this man and woman in this garden. It starts here, it says, so the man, Adam, gave names to all the livestock. This was his first job. The birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, it says no suitable helper was found. So you've got Adam and he's living the bachelor's dream. 
He's in a garden called the Garden of Eden. Eden in Hebrew means pleasure and delight. The whole world is his bachelor pad. He walks around naked. He's not worried about anyone seeing him. The whole world is his public toilet. Come on, somebody. All the men in the room are like, take me back, God. Take me there, right? And this is Adam's life. He's doing his job. But it says about Adam that when God surveyed, he saw that there was no suitable helper. Other translations say there was no helpmate. There was no one that completed his soul. So the verse goes on to say, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. Probably not that hard for God. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with flesh. Quick side note, this is just my own casual observation. It's interesting that God is going to form this woman out of the man, but in order to do it, he hurts the man and then he closes up that wound with the flesh. If you go to the New Testament, especially towards the end in what are called the epistles, which are some of the letters written to some of the churches in the first century, very often the apostle Paul uses the word flesh to talk about our own sinful nature, our own sinful desires. I want you to notice about the story of Adam that before God brings to him a woman, he closes up that place of flesh. I wonder if for you, you're here and you're single and you're like, God, send me the perfect woman. If you met the perfect woman, the problem is your flesh might be running so rampant in your life that you're not ready to receive her. What would it look like if you're here and you're single and you made this decision? God, all those places where I'm dishonoring you, I'm submitting to the desires of my own sinful flesh, whether it's porn or self-pleasure or trying to live in the world of hookup culture, like whatever that looks like, I'm gonna close that place of flesh so you can bring to me the person you have made me for. It goes on to say this, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. I want you to imagine this. Adam is put to sleep. He's, this surgery is done and God creates out of him this woman. Up until this moment, he's the world's greatest bachelor. He's living the bachelor's dream. And then he comes to out of this moment of sleep and he sees before him a woman. She is beautiful. She is a compliment to everything he is in the places where he is strong, she is delicate and the lines of his body that are hard, hers are curvy and soft. They are similar, but they are different. And he sees this woman and she's naked as a bonus and she comes walking to him. And all of a sudden, this guy goes from the world's greatest bachelor to a beautiful poetic author. Listen to what he says. He sees this naked woman and he said this, is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for when I saw her, I was like, whoa, man. It's not real. It says, for she was taken out of man. This word woman in Hebrew literally means out of me. It goes on to say this. And here's where the four principles are found. Number one, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and number two is united to his wife. And number three, they become one flesh. Next verse, verse number four says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Some of the men in the room are like, I've been looking for a life verse. That's my life verse right there. It's not a good one, boys. It goes on. I want you to get this. In these verses, you're going to find four principles that I believe are the laws for God's economy of love. And here's what I want you to understand. There's a reason that I'm using the term laws. Laws create boundaries, they create safety, they create order, and they create predictability. Laws are never intended to stop you from pleasure and joy. Laws are all about protecting you so that you can experience the fullness of pleasure and joy. 
I like to think of it like this. Like, what if laws didn't really exist? Like, we live in a world where we experience every single day the law of gravity. What if you woke up tomorrow and gravity was like happenstance? Like, some moments it was there, some moments it wasn't. You take one step and you're fine. You take another step and you start floating up into the sky. Like, it's unpredictable. Marriage should be a safe and predictable place. So I want you to write these laws down. In your message notes, law number one of love is this. It's the law of priority. The law of priority. Who's going to be first? Genesis 2, verse 24, we just read it. But it says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother. Quick side note, I want you to notice something. One of the ways we know that God wasn't just talking to Adam and Eve, but he was talking to us as well It says that they leave his mother and father, but Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother. They were created by God. It's implying that he's talking not just to them, but he's talking to every single person who will live in this world. This is why, marriage is why, a man leaves his father and mother. Let me try to explain to you what this means. The law of priority says that when I assess every relationship in my life, when you get married, the order and the priority shifts and it changes. And when you don't shift and change, it causes massive ripple effects and a tidal wave of problems in your future. I'll try to explain it like this. If I were to say to you, what are the most important relationships in your life? You might say, God is number one. And I would say that's right, and it's also kind of wrong. The best way I can explain it is this. In theology, we would say that God is preeminent. That means he exists before number one. He is above number one. Our whole life and world should revolve around him and his goodness and his love for us. He's number one, but he's above number one. But here, when it comes to our relationships on earth, when you get married, your spouse is number one, period. And people don't understand this. So here's what happens. We live in this world where it's like there's all these things competing to be number one in our life. We get married, we exchange some vows, we exchange rings and a kiss, and then we walk off into our new life together. And if you don't make the decision as a married couple to reorient and reprioritize your life, you are on a pathway for disaster. I can explain it to you like this. I love my parents. My wife loves her parents. When we got married, our relationship with our parents changed. Now my wife is number one. She is my priority and I am for her. In my best moments, in my worst moments, the first person I run to is her. Do I love my parents with all of my heart? Does she love her parents with all of her heart? But the relationship shifts and it changes. Here's what I've come to learn. For some people, the law of priority isn't even about relationships. It can be about other things that are good in your life. Like you can love your spouse, but you can treat them as if they don't matter by prioritizing things that just make you happy. Maybe for you, it's golf. And you love your wife, but you will spend any free moments you have watching golf, playing golf, being on the golf course. Maybe for you, it's work and you love your wife. No one doubts that you love your spouse, your husband. But you are addicted to, and the truth is, if you were to look at your schedule, your schedule might say that you are married to your job. Is it wrong to love what you do? No. Scripture teaches that we are to work as unto God because it's a way of honoring God. But your work was never intended to compete for first place in your heart. Here's a tough one for some people. Even our children, and I love my children. Ain't nobody in this room loves their kids more than me. I love being a dad. But can I teach you something? Parenting, in some sense, is a temporary assignment. When they're 18, 19, 37, at some point, 
At some point, they get out of your house. At some point, you push them out. Remember last week, we said this. The point of parenting is we raise our children to release them into the world like a, like a, like a bow and arrow. We shoot them out into the world. This was God's intention. Here's what I want you to understand. If you place your children above the priority of your spouse, it's one of the reasons that one of the number one age groups for divorce is actually in their 50s. This never made sense to me, really. You think about it like you've been married for 15 years or 20 years or more, and then you get divorced. The number one cause of it is couples, they center their whole world around their children, their kids' sports, their kids' events, their kids' school, their kids' life. It's all around their kids. Then the kids go off to college, and the mom and dad are left at home, and they come to realize that they have fallen apart. They've drifted apart from each other. Do they still love each other? Sure. But they haven't prioritized each other. So if you've ever been on the receiving end of this, if you've ever felt like you weren't the priority of your spouse, you understand what I would call a righteous jealousy. Now there's bad jealousy, don't get me wrong, but a righteous jealousy is understanding that in marriage, you are to be my number one and I am to be your number one. And when anything gets in the way, it causes this sense of jealousy. In fact, if you've ever felt that before, you need to understand that might be the imprint of God on your life. Look at Exodus, the book of Exodus. God himself says this. It says, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. Like one of the names of God is jealous with a capital J because he is a jealous God. What does it mean? It means God won't settle for anything else having your worship above him. He's not jealous if you enjoy other things. Enjoy your football, enjoy your golf, enjoy work, enjoy your kids, enjoy all of the things of life. Just don't let anything sit in the highest seat of worship in your life above him. Best I can explain it to you is this. When it's all said and done, what is first place in your time, your energy, your resources? It should be God. And then one of the ways we honor God is that our spouse is number one in our life. Let me explain it to you like this. If you want the bottom line, it's that marriage must be first. Marriage must be first. It's the law of priority. Second law that we find is this. It's the law of pursuit. The law of pursuit says, I don't stop pursuing you when we get married. That's actually when the work starts. Here it is, Genesis 2, verse 24. It's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. King James translation says they, they leave their mother and father and they cleave to one another. That word cleave or that word united in Hebrew literally means to pursue with the same amount of energy that it would take to climb a mountain. Okay, I want you to try to imagine this. Imagine if we left church today and we were to say, we're gonna go climb a mountain. Now, if we're in Florida, that means we have two options. We either get on a plane or we go to a landfill. Those are our two options. So we all hop on a plane together, probably several planes at this point. We get on several planes and we fly up to some beautiful rocky mountains. And I say to you, there's a change of shoes for you. Let's go. You are going to work so hard to get up that mountain. Here's what scripture teaches. In the same way that it would take enormous amounts of strength and energy to climb the mountain, it is going to take lots and lots of work in your marriage. You say, what do you mean? It means a lot of people, what they unintentionally do is they stop pursuing their spouse the moment they get married. It feels like for them, marriage is the finish line instead of the starting line in the race of life. I'll never forget some years ago, 
A couple came to me for counseling, and, and I've just kind of learned that if someone wants to meet with me for counseling, I just like to get a heads up before I get into it because I don't know what it's going to be about. And so the wife had written in, and so she said, um, having some marriage problems, my assistant said, well, what's going on? And she wrote back and said, we're just having an issue with some incompatibility in our drive for each other. Now, look, I've, I've counseled hundreds of couples at this point over the years, anecdotally, it feels like when that is the issue, when there's one person that has a greater drive, especially when it's like a sexual drive than the other person, my observation is eight or nine times out of 10, it's the man who desires it more than the woman. We are similar, but we are wired very differently. And this has been my anecdotal observation. It's not true across the board, it's just an observation. So the couple comes and they meet with me and I say, okay, guys, hit me, what's going on? Tell me what's going on. And the wife just like, she just unloads on me. She goes, we've been married for so many years and we have these two kids. And every day when my husband gets home from work, he literally wants to grab something to drink out of the refrigerator, sit down in front of his computer, and he wants to play video games until the wee hours of the night. He barely says hi to me, barely says hi to the children. She goes, there are nights when I will literally put the kids to bed by myself and I will beg him to come to the bedroom and to make love with me and he won't do it. And I looked at them and I said, huh? And, and, uh, and I'm like, okay. Um, so I said to the guy, I was like, tell me, like, from your perspective, what's going on? He goes, oh, she's right. I said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, I just, I just don't like desire her anymore. She's gained a lot of weight. And I kid you not, when he said this, the woman's whole countenance literally went from being excited to talk and try to hash this out to literally downtrodden. She just hunched over and she's went, oh. And I'm gonna be honest. I don't know what came over me. I'm not the most patient person when it comes to counseling. The guy goes, what do you think? And so what do I think? You don't wanna know what I think. And I unload on this guy. Because who does this? When you get married, you commit that for the rest of your life, you will bring your best, the best of your heart, the best of your time, the best of your energy. You will constantly bring the best of you. And here you have a wife who wants you and you won't even pursue her. She's pursuing you. If you take half a step towards her, she will come running towards you. And I'm yelling at this guy. Eventually when they left, my staff, they couldn't overhear what was happening, but our offices were very small in those days. And all they could hear was my screaming and so they leave and my staff comes in, they're like, is everything fine? I'm like, I'm just not a very good counselor. That's it, that's it, right? <laughs> Here's what I want you to understand. The law of pursuit says, nothing else gets my heart, nothing else gets my attention, and nothing else gets my energy more than you. I could say it like this, marriage takes consistent work. If you think that it's all over and it's all downhill and it's all fun, you've missed the point of it. It is always going to be about being selfless and serving each other. Law number three, the third law of love is simply this. It's what I'd call the law of partnership. That means that when you get married, you are in this for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part together. Here's what the Bible says, Genesis 2 verse 24 at the end. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Have you ever heard the phrase before that blood is thicker than water? Have you heard this before? This is usually good advice. Like, I would even explain it like this. If you're married, and say you're having a problem with one side of the relationship's family, like the parents are upset about something, 
my practical advice is blood is thicker than water. So what that means is in your marriage, if, if you're having a problem with your family, you go be the one to deal with it, not your spouse, because blood is thicker than water and they will forgive you. Okay, you with me? Blood is thicker than water. Can I tell you what's thicker than blood? Spirits. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, he says, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. Essentially what Jesus is saying is that a miracle happens when two people become one. That when they become one, literally they live and they operate as one person. I think about the moment in the, the gospels when a person comes to Jesus and they says, Jesus, what is the most important commandment? Jesus doesn't say one, he says two. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love you? It means you take care of your needs, you make sure you're fed, you make sure you get plenty of rest, you make sure you're provided for, you make sure you have hygiene, you make sure you're taken care of. When you get married, according to scripture, literally every part of you is forever now shared with your spouse. Every part of you is now joined together as one. Can I take this a step farther and get maybe a little awkward with you? This is the reason inside of marriage, the act of sexual intimacy is such a beautiful gift. In fact, it's, it's a gift and an act of worship. But it's the reason that outside of marriage, sex is so destructive and harmful. You say, why? It's not that God's intention was to stop you from having fun. God's intention was that sex would be a physical representation of the spiritual unification that's happened when a couple gets married. I'll explain it to you like this. In a marriage, we say that two lives are joined as one. If sex is a representation of it, here's what you have. You have two individual bodies that temporarily are joined together as one. This is the reason after sex, a married couple feels a release in their body that is so beautiful that binds them to each other. It's also the reason that when a couple outside of marriage has sex, they think they're fulfilling some sort of a need, but what happens is they look around and they don't find themselves permanently bonded to someone. So when they separate, what happens is the heartbreak they feel is so much greater because they're playing games with something that God meant to be incredibly serious and beautiful. Some people are like, well, Jason, does God want me to not have fun? God wants you to have the best time ever, but God understands the principle of patience and timing. God is saying, yes, have sex. Sex is beautiful and it is a gift. In fact, in the context of marriage, sex is worshiping God. Every time I say that, some creepy old dude comes up to me after church and is like, can't wait to go home and worship today. <laughs> Shut up, all right? Shut up, all right. But in marriage, it's a gift. So here's what scripture teaches. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians. And he's talking to this church that's all kinds of jacked up. And he says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority. Next verse for me, please. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Here's what this means. In every part of your life, in every part of your life, in your thoughts, in your emotions, in your energy, in your decisions, you operate as one. This means that in your physical bodies, when it comes to your life, your dreams, your desires, and when it comes to your sexuality, when it comes to everything that makes you you, in the context of marriage, it's actually a gift that was meant to be explored together. So here's what it means. The bottom line for this section is everything I have, I surrender to you. Let me say this to you. 
This means that selfishness has to die. It means that domineering and dominance has to die. It means that every decision you make, you make together. Over the last few years, uh, my wife and I have had a handful of times where one of us came to the table and said, we felt like God invited us to do something extravagant in terms of generosity. It's probably happened 10 to 15 times over the last two to three years. And every single time it happens, like one of us has the thought first, and we don't just go write a check or buy something and give it to someone. We literally take the idea, pray through it, and then we bring it to each other. There have been times where I brought an idea to Liz and I'm like, hey, if you feel like this is a no, it's a no. She's done the same. Last year, she brought me this extravagant idea of something she wanted to do to bless someone. And she brought the idea to me and she goes, look, same thing. Let's do this together. It's yes or no, but either way, I'm with you. We've said yes almost every time, but I love the heart of it. We make no decisions that affect each other without each other because we're operating as one. The final law, the fourth law, is the law of purity. The law of purity. I want you to see this. This is the next verse from what we just read, Genesis 2.25. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The word in Hebrew for the word naked is a fun word. It's the word arom. Arom literally means to be vulnerable, fully exposed. And isn't there this part of our lives that doesn't want that? Isn't there this part of you and isn't there this part of me that thinks if you truly knew me, you couldn't possibly love me? So what do we do? We hide. We live in shame. And it says about Adam and Eve that they were naked, but they felt no shame. Can I tell you what this means? It means that there was nothing between them. Naked means that they were not wearing clothes, but naked means something so much more beautiful and profound than that. It means that there was nothing in their soul that they were hiding There was nothing about them that they kept from the other person, fearing what they would judge or say about them. Can I tell you how incredible a God-honoring marriage is when you pursue purity? It means that in moments of intimacy, you come to your bedroom. You don't have to worry about where your spouse has been or who they've been with. This is the reason you have boundaries, because boundaries ultimately create freedom for you. This is the reason that God's intention was that you would pursue a life of purity before you get married. But check this out. Purity doesn't stop the moment you exchange rings. Purity means that for the rest of your life, you choose to only have eyes and a heart that pursues your spouse. So let me me get very blunt. If you are addicted to porn, kill it in Jesus' name. If you have relationships outside of your marriage, it has to die today, and you need to have the courage to have a hard, honest conversation with your spouse. This means that no one else is invited into your bedroom. This means you pay attention to your thoughts and your thought life. This means that all of my emotional energy, my heart, my soul, my eyes, my thought life, all of it belongs to my wife. And I want you to understand this. It is purity that paves the way to intimacy. Uh, Let me explain it to you like this. You're not just after good sex. That's not the heart of this. You are after something so much more profound, which is intimacy. Two lives forever entangled in a beautiful, romantic pursuit of each other. This is always God's intention. Let Let me come after you one more moment. For the last year, if I could just be blunt, I have been so upset at the work of the enemy when it comes to some of the marriages that are in my life talking about people in our church, and I'm talking about lots of people outside of our church. In the last two weeks, I have heard of multiple friends 
that are separating. Because one of the people stepped outside of the laws that God established for us with love. Look at me. May that never be your story. In a world where 50% of marriages in our country end in some sort of divorce, how incredible would it be if the great testimony you and I have to the world is that we made it and we stayed in love till death do us part. Like I want you to imagine a day someday we're at your 60th or 70th wedding anniversary, your kids and your grandkids stand around and they say, listen, that is what I want. I'm going to end with the story. This is a bonus. I didn't even tell this in first service. Many years ago, I had one of the coolest speaking opportunities I've ever had. I preached on big platforms at large churches. This was better than that. It was my grandparents' 60th wedding anniversary. And they wanted to renew their vows, and they asked me to officiate it. I thought, if you made it 60 years, I don't know why you need to tighten the knot anymore, but it is what it is. And they were, they were elderly at this point, and so they come forward, and they had walkers, but they, they sat on their walkers, and they held hands. And I, I did all the wedding talk, and I said, do you still take her? Do you still take him to be your lawfully wedded wife and husband? They said, I still do. And I called my grandparents, Mima and Papa. I said, Papa, you can kiss your bride. And they leaned over in their chairs, and when they kissed, I mean, it's awkward. I'm like this far away from them. And when their lips untangled, there was this chain of drool that connected them. <laughs> so, so gross. And I remember thinking, that's what I want. Like, not, not, not that, but you get it. Year and a half later, I flew back to Texas. My grandmother had passed away. And I walked in with my papa, put my arm around his shoulder, and we walked in together up to the front of the room where the casket was. And he said, that's my girlfriend. And here's what he said. 61 and a half years, not long enough. That's my goal. How incredible would it be if that was your goal? How amazing would it be if your life was a testimony to the world around us that God's love and God's laws work when we apply them? And let's make the decision in an increasingly dark world when it comes to relationships and marriage, let's buck the trend and let's be the kind of people who live a life that honors God. Can I get a good amen from anybody up in here? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let me pray over you. So God, in this place, would you bless and anoint all the marriages? God, for all the people who are single, God, I pray that you will give them the courage to not settle, but to pursue the kind of person who will pursue the laws of love and the laws of God when it comes to marriage. For the people who are in this room who are hurting because they're in a marriage that someone else is breaking the laws on them, God, would you give them grace, strength, and peace in this season? For the person who's in this room and they're new to marriage, God, give them inspiration. For the person who's on the other side of this and their heart feels broken by this today, would you give them your grace and your blessing and your strength? God, my prayer is that our church won't be another statistic in an increasingly dark world, but my prayer is that our church will be a beacon of light and hope. Thank you for it, God. So God, would you give strength? Would you give wisdom? Would you help us to be people who pursue purity so that our marriages can go till death do us part? And we can say 61 and a half years or whatever the number, not long enough. 